from the National Association of Evangelicals, welcome to today's conversation. Our topic, food, faith, and writing. Host Lee Anderson, NAE president, talks with Margaret Feinberg, popular Bible teacher, author, and speaker. Today's conversation is presented by Ashland Theological Seminary, a graduate division of Ashland University. Since 1906, Ashland has integrated excellent theological education with Christ-centered transformation, equipping men and women from over 70 denominations for ministry and service through their four Midwestern campuses and online at seminary.ashland.edu. And now, let's join in. I'm Leith Anderson, president of the NAE, here with Margaret Feinberg. Margaret is a popular Bible teacher and speaks at events such as Catalyst, Thrive, and Women of Joy. Her books, including Scouting the Divine, Fight Back with Joy, and their corresponding Bible studies have sold over one million copies. And Margaret's new book is Taste and See, Discovering God Among Butchers, Bakers, and Fresh Food Makers. Named one of Christianity Today's 50 Women Shaping church and culture. Margaret lives in Utah with her husband, Leif, who pastors a local campus and their super pup named Hershey. And let me interject a couple of uh, just personal comments. So Margaret's husband is Leif, and I get called that. My name is Leif, but I get called by his name. One of the delights is I have had his name so often on name tags and things by mistake. So he went to a conference and they put Leith, L-E-I-T, use my name for him. I mean, it's only happened once. How much I like that. And then when it comes to food. So let me tell you that Charlene and I invited uh, Leith and Margaret out to dinner and they switched the invitation and said, come to our house for dinner. And it was great. So she not only writes about food, she actually cooks and serves food. So thanks for joining us, Margaret. It is a joy to be with you today. All right, so let's dig right in. Your new book, Taste and See, covers culinary themes in scripture. It's kind of a food theology book. So how did you get into this? Whatever got you started in this line of study and writing? About 10 years ago, I went on an unusual journey looking at agrarian themes in the Bible. I went and spent time with a shepherd, a vintner, a farmer, and a beekeeper, and opened up the Bible and asked, how do you read these passages? Not as theologians, but in light of what you do every day. And their answers, they changed the way that I read the Bible forever. Time and time again, I found myself asking, how have I studied the scriptures? How have I grown up in the church? How have I studied these so many times and nobody has told me these things? And that that became the journey of scouting the divine, my search for God among wine, wool, and wild honey. Well, when I was done with that book, I had person after person come up to me and say, why didn't you spend time with an olive grower? And I thought, you know, I really should have. And so I've sat on this idea for the last decade and only recently have just felt that nudge, that leading of the Holy Spirit to say, now is the time. And so I went on a similar journey, and I didn't even realize it the first time when I wrote Scouting the Divine that all of the things that I was looking at were food. And so when I made a list of various um, elements that I wanted to study in Scripture, once again, they were all food. And so I began looking for food in the Bible, and it's amazing because once you start looking for it, it literally pops and sizzles on almost every page. 
you're giving me the feeling that we should be at Whole Foods with our Bibles in our hands, standing in the aisle and talking about this. So, all right. So you call God the original foodie. Uh, what do you mean by that? You know, some people are intimidated by the word foodie. Other people embrace it wholeheartedly. I, I think somewhere for me, I'm a little bit in the middle. Some people who are super foodies really intimidate me. Um, but if you look up the definition of a foodie, it is simply someone who takes a particular interest in food. And I don't know about you, Lace, but I, I love food. I, I, I am already thinking about what I'm gonna eat for probably breakfast, lunch, and dinner tomorrow. And so what I began to notice is that when you start to look at the, the overall story of scripture, that God is someone who takes a particular interest in food, that when he fashioned the garden, he really created this zagat rated five-star Yelp buffet, you know, for the original couple in, in which I believe that in the cool of the day, they didn't just talk and walk with God but they noshed and they nibbled. And yet even after a willful act of disobedience that involves food, God does not push food to the side. Rather, it, he keeps using it and its imagery in his call for redemption of humankind and in his redeeming purposes. We see it through the words of the prophets and the priests and the kings and the queens, all the way to Jesus, who in the very son of God associates himself with foodstuff. I mean, he is the bread of life, the true vine. He is the anointed one, the one who comes literally dripping in oil. And when the church is birthed, those who, who lead it, those who are partakers of it, are called to gather around a table. We discover in the book of Revelation that this rich imagery of Jesus who is standing on the, the, the doorsteps of our hearts knocking. And, and what is he doing? He doesn't want to come in to, you know, do an upgrade or, or perhaps a repo or renovation as much as he wants to come in and dine with us, to sup with us. And it's in that place that we experience the transformation. And when this whole shindig goes down, we are going to all gather around a table and we are going to feast on the biggest, best banquet of all time. And so I think it is fair to say that God takes a particular interest in food and therefore he is the original foodie. So Margaret, one of my frustrations is that I go into restaurants and look at the menu and sometimes there are a lot of words there. I don't even know what these words mean. And it's embarrassing to ask the, the, the server to translate what these things are. And sometimes that even happens in the Bible. So there's food there that, well, what is this? How did you decide which food in the Bible that you're going to zero in on and which ones you're going to skip? Lave, I love that because I have that same intimidation when I walk into restaurants too. And the first thing I do is I usually whisper to the person if I'm eating with somebody and say, do you know what that means? And sometimes they save me, but when they don't, um, I, am, I am the first to ask the waiter or wait staff and to learn what those words mean. But there, as you said, are just so many foods in the Bible. And so I realized that with such a spectrum, I really needed to zero in on them, and I actually highlighted six different ones. And the ones that I chose were ones that, that tended to have enough scripture uh, that describes them or mentions them, that it wasn't just a passing reference to some random um, spice or a particular, for instance, for instance, type of flour. So instead of just researching barley, I, I, I took the overall category of 
uh, of, of bread in the Bible. And so what happened is that um, I actually began to search out these scriptures. And once I identified them, then I started going and looking for people who planted and procured and processed them, who I could interview, who, who loved working with food, that it wasn't just some large, you know, kind of punch it out, push it out, but that they were more artisanal. They were hands-on. They cared about the quality. They cared about the uniqueness of it and um, went and, and, and found these people. I didn't have any contacts. I, I literally had to pray and say, okay, God, I feel like you are my editor and I'm going to trust you in this and I need you to provide those people. And then I would begin asking people, you know, do you know a fig farmer? Do you know a fig farmer? Do you know a fig farmer? Until someone would mention that maybe they knew somebody who knew somebody and then I would begin to, to ask and track down those trails. And in the end, I went 410 feet down into a salt mine. I fished on the Galilee. I brought in an olive harvest in Croatia. I went and figs with the foremost fig farmers in the United States. I even traveled to Yale University to make bread in matzah in under 18 minutes with a Yale professor who's just an expert on ancient grains. And I even graduated from a Stakeology 101 course in McKinney, Texas, from a butcher who calls himself the meat apostle. And with each of these individuals, again, opening up the scripture and asking, how do you read this? Not as theologians, but in light of what you do every day. And I am in awe of just how much richer, much more uh, the layers of meaning that, that have come alive in the scripture because of these journeys. My home is in Minnesota. We have pig farmers and not pig mm. farmers. Um, and pig farmers, they didn't come out too well in the Bible, so pigs are a bigger deal in the Bible. But you've had lots of places, lots of experiences. Uh, I got to ask, um, is there a favorite food experience in these places, some of which are exotic that you went to? Tell a story about something you really thought was a favorite. You know, I think I was really profoundly struck by the time in Croatia harvesting olives. I did not grow up around olive trees. I'm not familiar with them. Uh, and I believe there's a, almost a billion olive trees on the planet, but about 90% of them are in kind of that Mediterranean, Middle Eastern region. And so Leif and I travel to a remote island of Havar, and we go and spend time with a, a family who lives so remote, they didn't really have running water and only temporary electricity. And only the daughter speaks a bit of English. The mother uh, and father do not. And we go out to this enormous hillside of olive trees. And, and when we park, I think, oh my goodness, we have to pick them all. And Natalia, our hostess, explains, no, 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 you, we are not rich. We only own two over there and one over there. And what had happened is 100, 150 years ago, when the olive trees were planted, one owner owned them all, but the owner had children, and then they were divided out. And that happened generation after generation after generation until I pull up and we only owed two, owned two over there and one over there, which was just an incredible remembrance as I looked at the crumbling walls between them not to move the ancient uh, boundary stones. But it is Mama instructed us how you reach up the, the, the 
branch and you massage it until the, the olives drop down into the bucket, I began to discover just the miraculous nature that got embedded in the olive. But in fact, if you look at an olive tree, uh, and especially on its leaves, you'll discover that on one side, there are these micro little fibers. And what they do is actually detect the weather. And so on the particularly rainy days, those leaves will curl under and on the sunny days, they will flatten out which is why you can drive by an olive tree one day and it appears uh, a gray color and on another it will appear green. But what we discover is the miracle is not just in the leaves that God designed, but actually in the fruit itself. Because Leif and I would spend, not Leif, Leif and I would spend up to 10 hours a day reaching up day after day, picking olives. And those branches would cut our hands at times. We'd get the small twigs, we'd get scrapes. And yet when I would come back to Natalia's house at the end of the evening, my hands felt like they'd been in a world-class spa. And that's because God embedded not just the leaves, but also the olives and their oil with these antibacterial, antioxidant, anti-inflammatory properties. And so I find it fascinating that of all of the substances that God could have chosen for anointing, he chose oil. And in particular in that region, the olive oil, knowing that he had already embedded healing qualities within it. And that as it describes in James, that, that as we go before the elders to seek our own healing, that the very oil that they would anoint us with would be oil that is embedded with healing properties for the healing that we need. That Christ himself would take on this imagery. He would take on this food stuff as the anointed one. That he would, on the night of his arrest, go to the Garden of Gethsemane, the, the place of the olive press, surrounded by olive trees. And just as those olives ride and wrestle underneath that large round stone press, so too Christ rise and wrestles. With the oil pouring out of the olive, similarly, he is feeling that crushing and that pressing until blood drips from him. And yet through his death and resurrection, he arises with healing in his wings. And so in going into these places, understanding these foods of the Bible in a granular level through taste and see the book and Bible study, that the reading of food and scripture, it just comes alive in such a fresh and meaningful way. Are there other experiences that help you understand the character of God? You're you're doing something for me right now in that and I've read the Bible over and over again. I've actually never much thought of it in the terms that you're talking about. So if somebody who is um, well-read in the Bible wants to read it afresh um, at the table, at the food table, how do they read differently? How do you read differently now than you did before? You know, I think for me, just to be honest, as an American, um, for me, food had become a commodity, a, a quick fuel, something that just all too often, it's fast food. It's something I throw down my throat so that I can move on to the next thing. And what happened is I began studying food and looking at it throughout the scripture. I began to discover each morsel, each bite, once again, as the gift of a good and generous God, a God 
who, when we start to pause and look at the food that we eat, when we start to, to, to go back to that source, which is as simple as you and I maybe just stopping by a farmer's market and, and talking to the farmer. And maybe for those who may not be able to afford, afford to buy a ton of food at the farmer's market, you can still buy an apple or two and support that farmer. But all of a sudden, recognizing that when we sit down to a table, that the food we eat was largely grown it was, it was cared for. There were people who, who sacrificed to, to tend, to process, to plant, to produce that food. And that those people, just like us, are dependent on a God who, who hung the stars, who spins the sun, who causes the seasons, that creates this recognition that every bite is a gift of God, that he is our provider, that he is our creator, that he is our sustainer. And that when we gather around that table, we have such opportunity to give thanks, not just for the food and perhaps the rote prayers that we've been praying, but thanking God for the person who planted, the person who processed, the person who drove the truck to carry that food to our grocery store. And that when we gather around that table, we recognize that it's not just us, but that as we eat with others, this is a communal recognition. That in the very process of eating, we are making a confession through deed that we cannot exist on our own, that we are all dependent upon food, and that we enter into that time that God, too, wants to, to be present, that at the center of the meal is still Christ. So for me, I know as I've been gathering around the table, the research in this and those who go through the book and the Bible study will have those scriptures come alive, but it's transforming the way that I eat with others. I now begin praying beforehand, sometimes even days before, if there's a, a meal on the calendar and saying, Jesus, come and show up and surprise us in amazing ways. Holy Spirit, grace us in fresh ways with your presence. God, smile upon us. Coming with that expectation that as I gather around the table with somebody else, that as we eat, we are hungry for so much more than the food on the table. We are hungry to know and to be known, to love and to be loved, to enter a place where we can be vulnerable and any sense of shame scurries away. And so there is this reality as we start diving into scripture studying the food, studying what God wants to do around the table, that I think we start to discover table time is more than just an intake of food, but that table time is designed by God to be transformation time. You give a wonderful description of the upside. The Bible talks about feasts, but the Bible also talks about the downside, and that is famine. And there's a lot of brokenness in our culture, and I assume other cultures as well, about food. So there's wrestling with weight, there are food addictions and disorders and fad diets. Things change. Weight Watchers has changed its name now to WW. Uh, well, what does the Bible teach us about the downside, the dark side of our relationship with food? I think it traces all the way back to the garden of anything that could have been used for temptation. It was food. And you and I and other church leaders know there is nothing good that God has done that he has not provided that has not been twisted in some way. And so I don't think that we should be surprised that, that, that especially in our modern culture, food has been so tainted and twisted. It can be used um, as a source of power. Uh, over others. It, it can be used as a source of 
um, of, of bribe and of uh, used for theft. I was amazed at almost every food that I researched that all of them had a dark side. Uh, there are literally, there's an olive oil mafia <laughs> that exists. Um, again, watering down olive oil, twisting it at the same time. The dark side of food is that sometimes we are just wasteful. Um, in either overconsumption or purchasing and, and wasting. I think it's up to 40 to 50% of all food in our United States is, is wasted when we have children who are going to bed hungry. And, and so I think the Bible calls us in, in my own personal journey through writing this to, to stop for a moment, to, to pull back and take a fresh perspective on what God reveals about food what it's revealing about himself, what he's accomplishing through the table, what he's trying to remind us when we reach for olive oil and its healing properties, when we are breaking bread and the deep symbolic of that. And so what I'm trying to do through this book is ground us in scripture in such a way that when we do approach food, we're, we're approaching it from a healthier, more biblically based uh, recognition of God's goodness in, in every bite, that, that in essence, that, that food is God's love made edible. And when we start to recognize that and have that transformation in ourselves, then I believe that shifts the way that we approach the table, the way we think about the lack of food within our nation around our, and around this world, uh, the way that we look at food as an opportunity to serve and love others for those who are in need, and not just in food need, but, but are in crisis and in difficulty and start to shift that. All right, so how about some like practical steps? Um, so how, how can we improve the way we relate to food so that all that you're talking about uh, demonstrates uh, the love to God and to our neighbor? And I, I guess I want to also say that um, I'm just thrilled and impressed that you can fish on the Sea of Galilee and go to the Havar and you know, check out an island and an olive tree in in Croatia, but most people, you know, they're not going to go there. They're not going to, they're not going to do that. So how can us, everybody else learn more about food in the Bible? Mm, you know, what's beautiful is that most of these journeys, a lot of them began local or in family members or friends that I knew. So long before I went to Yale to bake bread with an expert on ancient grains, I talked to the bakers right here in my own community. As I started to research this book, I went and I reached out to my local restaurants, the chefs, the cooks. And what's amazing is that when you don't have to go far to discover people who know a ton about food and are passionate about them, and, and that you can start asking questions right where you are in your own community, seeking these things out, much like scouting the divine, spending time with a shepherd, anyone who lives in a rural area may have access to sheep or may have access to beekeepers. And, and so begin those conversations where you are locally. You don't have to go far. But I think secondly, is as you dive into the scripture and you recognize that food is God's love made edible, to look for ways that you can shop local and that you can support your local farmers that are in your area or in your region, or those who are purveying food in such a way that they're making personal sacrifices, that they're sacrificing their time, sometimes uh, the time with their families in order to create high quality products. And you may not be able to afford a lot, but I bet there's a, a small piece of something that you can buy and support them and, and, and get into community with them. I think third, 
Um, another way that we can relate to food better is thinking about the communion, uh, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist in ways that perhaps involve our community. And I know that in larger churches, this may be difficult or uh, maybe an obstacle that's hard to overcome. But, but maybe once a year, reaching out to, to a team of bakers or people who love baking in your church and ask to make the bread so that the bread itself comes from your own community because bread itself was a communal act as you're discovering in tastency and allow people to taste the flavor of those in their community preparing the bread. And so I think there's so many creative and innovative ways to not just re-engage with food in a fresh way, but help others re-engage too. Just recently I was in a small restaurant in Colorado Springs and it was owned by the chef and the chef walked by and we talked to him, and he liked to talk about food. Wow, just ask him. It was amazing. <laughs> it was sort of turning on the faucet. All right, so you've written about this, and Taste and See is the book. Taste and See, Discovering God Among Butchers, Bakers, and Fresh Food Makers. So let's just talk for a few minutes about writing, and you are amazing. You've had enormous success, and you write so wonderfully well. Um, let's talk about that, and especially how you have – uh, sought to encourage new writers, blossoming writers. So how did you get into this? How did you become a writer? And was there this moment when you realized I'm going to pen books? <laughs> you know, I graduated from Wake Forest University. I was a religion major studying on, uh, focusing on New Testament studies. And it wasn't until my senior spring I had this sense, I really want to write. And, um, and I took one journalism class, and then I interned for a small Christian magazine in Lake Mary, Florida. And I, I decided at the end of that, that internship that I realized that people who work for publishers and magazines don't get to write. And um, so I moved in my, with my parents, and I checked out every book on writing. And they said, basically said 97% of writers never make it. And I said, perfect, that's for me. And so began writing just reviews in the back of magazines, working my way up to, to news stories, to feature stories, to cover stories, and eventually into books. And so really was able to use, much like people would today, perhaps a blog post or the script for a podcast to hone the craft of writing. I did it writing thousands of reviews. And um, just have had the privilege of, of sharing um, what God has been doing in my life and in our generation over the last 20 years. And, and part of that is is I wanted to be able to share that, the, what I've learned. Uh, I, I, we joke that I learned most of my lessons the hard, expensive way, um, but in an online course called Write Brilliant. And it is designed as a 16-week course to help people go literally from the very basics to identifying who their audience is, uh, help them up their writing skills through word magic, um, to build an audience, develop their big idea in such a way that the book transforms lives. I think we're living in an age where anybody can publish anything, but I'm interested in writers who want to write the words that help change the world. And so when you have a clear roadmap on how to do that, it becomes, it, it doesn't become easy because good writing is hard, but it becomes so much quicker. It becomes so much more effective. And I get the privilege um, of helping save people from, from the many, many mistakes that I have made. It seems like you have just given an appetizer to one of your many writing workshops, and that's uh, tantalizing. Suppose that uh, 
you're in front of a workshop and somebody says to you, okay, I've heard all this and this is great, but what's the top thing? What's the number one piece of advice? How would you answer a question like that? Mm. My number one piece of advice is you have got to not just define your audience, but you have got to know them in and out. The who of your writing will determine the what of your writing. And so often we just think we have a concept or we have an idea or we have something that happened to us and we write out of that. The only problem is often when we're writing that, we're writing for ourselves. And if you write for yourself, do you know how many people want to write that, read that? It, it's one. It's just you. But when you start with a who perspective of who are you going to serve, what are their needs, how well do you know them, then that's going to shape your content in which you can directly meet their needs and transform them. And so when we in the Right Brilliant course, especially the online one, we get really specific. We want you to name the person. We want you to know their age, where they live, what their work is. We want, we want you to know everything about them in a specific way because when you can write to somebody specific and their specific needs, then all of a sudden you can reach everyone. And so we have a process for doing this in the course, and it is amazing how it transforms people's writing because we believe that at its core, writing is an act of self-sacrifice. You don't do it for you. You do it in following Christ to lay down your life and to find words that will empower them to become stronger Christ followers. When you watch movies and there's an author in a movie, they talk about writer's block, and that seems to be a stereotype that maybe all writers have? I don't know. So what's your advice for those that get stuck? I would say don't buy into the writer's block myth. Real writers write when they don't feel like it. Real writers write when they don't want to. Real writers write when they don't have the words. And so whatever your goal for the day may be, even if it's 200 words a day, you're going to write, you don't have a lot of time, you're going to write 200 words a day. I don't care if you sit and you type out the word blue 200 times, you still commit to get the words on the paper. Because if you're faithful in that, then there will come a day that those words naturally flow. And besides, your first draft is not going to be that great. But if we can get the words on the paper, then we can have the clay to begin to mold and shape and create something beautiful that helps transform lives. All right, I'm going to ask you a question, and then I'm going to answer it for you, but then you can give the real answer. Okay. So here's the question. Uh, Margaret, where do you get inspiration for your writing? And my answer for you to say is, Margaret, you're an interesting person. You're an inspiring person. So that's where you get it from. It's sort of who you are. Or sometimes I listen to sermons that preachers give and they're not very interesting. And I think, or they ask me, how can I do an interesting sermon? And the answer is be an interesting person, be interested <laughs> in other people, just be interested. And if you're interested and you're interesting, then your sermon will be. Okay, back to the question I'm supposed to be asking you, and that is, uh, where do you get inspiration for your writing? Mm -hmm. I think I'm a naturally curious person. Uh, See, I, I had the right I, answer. I had the right answer. You did. You did. <laughs> when I was probably seven years old, it's deep down inside. I remember I was sitting in my parents' office at their work, and I was curious if the stapler, if I stapled my finger, if it would go all the way through. And like, <laughs> it did. It did. <laughs> and so I think that curiosity is constantly driving me to ask just 
questions that I just wrestle with, like the idea of food. That's not, you know, in the Bible, that's not a normal, probably average topic of study. I know the academics are just beginning to really start to dive into this this theme and this topic in, in new and fresh ways and recognize that um, in the academic circles. And so it's just this curiosity. And then to step out with courage and faith and start asking the questions and finding the people who can help, help you find the answers. But it's just part of following Jesus and, and trying to obey what he's calling you to next. I have one last question. So you travel a lot, you speak to many thousands of people, and then there are millions who read your words and books. So what brings you hope as you speak and teach about God? Faith, I know you and I haven't really talked about this, um, but I am seeing these wellsprings of looking like it is the budding up of a renewal or revival that is going to come to our nation. I am watching pastors and leaders call their people to prayer, call their people to experiencing the reality of Christ, opening up their hearts to the reality of the Holy Spirit and what He wants to do in their midst. And it is happening in church after church, town after town, city after city that I go to. And so I am inspired. I am hopeful. I know it looks dark on the outside, but I believe this is when the saints start to shine the bright. Our guest on today's conversation has been Margaret Feinberg. I'm Leith Anderson. And on behalf of us all, very special thanks to Margaret. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent evangelical Christians in the United States. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals. And sign up for our email list when you visit our website at nae.net.